It's nice to be referred to as a classic. I'm a classic. I'm a classic. Not as aesthetically pleasing as our recent lineup, but uh, you know, it's about what I say, not what I look like this morning. So just, so just bear with me, okay? Anyway, um, if you want to open your Bibles, there's a couple of passages: Luke 5:27 to 32, and Luke 11. I'm doing a couple of contrasting stories here to make my point this morning, and I'll start by just reading this story from Luke chapter 5, uh, verse 27 through to 32. It says, after this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting in his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him. And Levi got up, left everything and followed him. Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house. And a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. When they say were others, you, you know what type of people they're talking about, don't you? Others, the tax, other tax collectors, other people that weren't on the A list anywhere else. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to his disciples, why why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered them, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Ever heard a story that gets you right here? Yeah? Hear a story that gets you right here and it kind of messes you up a little bit? I heard one when I was in theological college, and just for context, when I was in theological college, I was a bit of a Pharisee. I was really obsessed with getting things right, as if that's even possible, I understand that now, but back then, I thought there was, you know, there was a right way of understanding God, there was a right way of understanding the Bible, you know, there was, it was really that black and white, that's how kind of fixed I was on this and it translated into all sorts of things I mean I only read Christian books right that wasn't a great offering either Um, and I only listened to Christian music we even in a fit of religious peak threw out all our vinyl albums so we didn't get possessed right now we're trying to buy them all back again right (laughs) I mean, where are we going to get a copy, Tom, of Spend Our Ballet in an actual gold album? I mean, where? All right? So, so we'd thrown out all our albums. You know, this, this, this was us. And then I, I read this book. Someone gave me a book to read by a guy called Tony Campolo, who's a Baptist pastor and a sociology professor, and it's called The Kingdom of God is a Party. Has anyone ever read that book, heard that story? He tells this amazing story in it. And this was a story that got me and messed me up. And in this story, he's in Honolulu. And forgive me if you've heard this story, but there's plenty of people that haven't. He's in Honolulu for a conference. And it's 2.30 in the morning and he can't sleep, so he decides to get up and go for an early breakfast. And he wanders the streets and the only place that he can find that is open is this rather small greasy spoon diner. So he goes in there and he's thinking about what to order, but he looks around, he sees the hygiene in the place and realises that this is where food poisoning comes for holidays too, right? So he decides that he's just going to order a coffee and a donut and sit there. So he's sitting there eating his coffee and his donut when about half an hour later, all the ladies of the night come in. And because it's a small diner, they take up residence around him. He's sitting at a bar and One of them sits to his right, another sits to his left, and they're talking over the top of him. And by this stage, he's thinking, I'm just going to... I probably shouldn't be here. I'm just going to get up and leave. 
He's worked out by this stage that the woman to his right, her name is Agnes, and just as he's about to leave, Agnes leans across and says to the woman on his left, it's my birthday tomorrow. And the woman on the left says, so, what do you want me to do about it? Do you want me to bake you a cake? Do you want me to sing you happy birthday? And Agnes says, look, no, you don't have to be mean. I'm not asking you to do anything. I don't want anything from you. I'm just... I'm just letting you know. And why, I don't want you to bake me a cake. I've never had a birthday cake, ever. I've never celebrated a birthday. So he sits there and they all filter back off into the night. And before he leaves, he says to the owner of the cafe, do they come in every night? The owner says, yeah, they do. What time? Three o'clock, like clockwork. And he said, right, I've got an idea. Why don't we throw Agnes a birthday party tomorrow night? And they love the idea. And the wife says, you know, I'll cook the cake. And Tony says, I'll, I'll take care of the decorations. So the next, next early morning, he comes back in about 2.30. They decorate the place. They have the cake there. Sure enough, at 3 o'clock, Agnes walks in. Now, by this stage, word had got out. And pretty much every prostitute in Honolulu was packed into this diner. <laughs> Agnes walks in at 3 o'clock and everyone screams out, Happy birthday, Agnes. Well, she's so shell-shocked that she has to be sat down in a booth. When they bring out the cake, she absolutely loses control of herself, just sobbing. And they say, come on, Agnes, cut the cake, cut the cake. And she stops and she says, listen, do you mind if I don't cut the cake? Would you mind if I, I just took this home and kept it safe? Because I've never had a birthday cake. And then I'll come back. So she takes the cake home. Well, there's this really long, awkward silence that falls over the diner. I don't, I don't know if you've ever been in situations like this where you've been around people that have been so touched by something or you've been in the presence of something like that, but it's kind of a holy moment, you know what I mean? There's just something really profound about what has just transpired and, and no one wants to break the silence because you don't want to spoil it. So he lets the silence linger for a while and he says, why don't we pray for Angus, Agnes? Not Angus, it wasn't a Scottish guy that was there. <laughs> that story took a strange turn. Let's pray for Agnes. And so he prays for Agnes. The party goes on, everyone leaves, and just as he's about to go, the owner of the diner calls him over and says, hey, I didn't know you were a, a preacher. And he said, yeah, yeah. He goes, what sort of church do you belong to? And Tony Campolo says, the church that throws birthday parties for hookers at three o'clock in the morning. And the owner of the diner, he just sits there for a while, not saying anything. And then he says, you know what? There aren't any churches like that. But if there was, I would join one in a heartbeat. And why that kind of stuck with me and was very confusing to me at the time, was because everything about this story seemed so wrong, and yet it kind of felt so right at the same time, you know what I mean? It, it, really, it really conflicted with the way I thought things were, and the way I thought things should be, and how everything worked. But I guess more than that, it resonated with something in me. It resonated with something in me that made me excited and feel more alive and passionate about that than I had anything else I'd been studying at that time. 
and it still does. And the reason it does is because when I read that, it sounds to me a lot like Jesus, yeah? It sounds to me a lot like Jesus. And I believe it sounds a lot like the church that Jesus has in mind when he says, I will build my church. And logically, it makes sense that the church that Jesus would build would be a church that would look and smell and feel and act a whole lot like him. You know, but as we know, so often it doesn't. So often it, it looks almost antithetical to Jesus. Sometimes it looks like the type of church that the other people around in Jesus' day were trying to build for themselves, something that's prim and proper, something that looks really neat and tidy and pristine on the surface, but is equally as lifeless as Jesus' church is full of life. Now you contrast that Levi's party story in Luke 5 with this other story in Luke 11, and Jesus is invited to a Pharisee's house for dinner. And I'm just going to read you the first two verses here. It says, When Jesus had finished speaking, a Pharisee invited him to eat with him. So he went in and he reclined at the table. But the Pharisee was surprised when he noticed that Jesus did not first wash before the meal. And look, reading that, and I'm thinking, that's your takeaway from this, mate? You know, you, A, Jesus was lucky to be invited to this guy's place for dinner anyway, because, you know, these Pharisees were not known for just hanging around with just anybody. It was usually only their own kind. But he's been invited because they've seen and heard something in him that's piqued their interest at least. They, they, whether they mean it or not, they call him rabbi, they call him teacher, they almost treat him like he's a bit of an equal. But he's there and he's obviously something that you've never seen before because you've invited him because you, you've got questions but your takeaway from this is, oh dear, he hasn't washed. He's welcome at the table but you know what, mate, before you can sit at my table, you've got to get cleaned up first. Now, to be fair, this was, this was their operating system. This was how they worked. They were very, very big on the ritual purity stuff, right? They were very, very big on making sure about the externals. So, you know, they went through all the rituals of making sure they were clean, all their utensils were clean and everything because they did not want to defile themselves in some way. They didn't want to swallow gnats. They didn't want to get dirt. And they didn't want to defile themselves by, by what they ate and they didn't want to defile themselves by who they ate with or what they touched or bumped into or associated with. All this ritual purity, it was very big. So I understand where he's coming from in that. They were big believers in that. But Jesus saw things very, very differently. And as any good guest as a dinner would do, he launches into them. And he starts on this woe to you thing, right? I'm not going to read the whole thing because it's, it's quite long. But he essentially says to them, okay, you pick me up for not washing, but let me tell you a few home truths. You're dead on the inside. You're dead on the inside. You, you're fastidious about keeping things clean on the outside, but your heart's are stone cold. You major on the minors and you overlook the things that really, really matter. Now, you read stuff like this. Um, no, actually, at one point, sorry, at one point, there's another group of people there we heard in the other story, the, the teachers of the law who belong to the sect of the Pharisees. And one of them is at the dinner too, and he says, Teacher, when you say these things... You insult us also. <laughs> and Jesus goes, oh, I'm sorry, I've got my own set of insults for you. And begins to launch into them as well. And perhaps the most damning indictment that he says to them right at the very end, and he, said, he says this, 
you hold the keys of knowledge. You refuse to enter and you prevent those who want to enter from entering. Wow. Now you read stuff like this and there's a whole bunch of interactions that Jesus has had with the religious leaders. You read through the Gospels, right? And you'd be forgiving for thinking that they actually don't see eye to eye. He's always calling them out for something. He's always doing something to press their buttons. They're always looking for ways to catch him out. They're always looking for ways to trip him up. And towards the end of his ministry, they're actively looking for ways to have him killed. So they don't see eye to eye, okay? But they did agree on one thing. And this one thing they kind of agreed on was that there was this feast to be had in the fulfilment of the kingdom of God. And God was in the process now of inviting people to that feast. They just disagreed on the guest list. They just disagreed on who would actually be invited, who would have a place at that table. And in Luke 14, Jesus is invited to a Pharisee's house. You notice all these stories are from Luke? Because in Luke, Jesus is either at a meal going to a meal or coming from a meal. Because meals were a very, very important way of manifesting what his ministry was all about. Now, if you want to know more about that, there's this fantastic message that I did um, about 18 months ago called The Table at the End of the World that really spells all this stuff out in detail. I'm not going over it again now, okay? But he gets stuck into the... They're all, they're all fighting over the best spots at the table. Who gets the seat of honour? And Jesus is saying, don't... Don't fight over who gets the best spot because it's going to be really humiliating if the master of the feast says to you, no, don't sit there, go to a lesser seat. Take a lesser seat first because then you'll be honoured and brought to a better seat. And this guy calls out, blessed, blessed is he who will eat at the feast of the kingdom of God. That was their eschatology. That's what they were looking forward to. One day God is going to have this banquet, this, this kingdom banquet, and we're all going to be celebrating in it. They were all looking forward to it. But they disagreed about who was on the guest list and what the conditions of entry were. Now, Jesus had an all-inclusive guest list. It was prostitutes, sinners, tax collectors, lepers, the poor, the blind, the lame, you name it, all the people who were normally excluded. Anyone and everyone was invited and there were no conditions. It was literally, quite literally, you can come as you are. To the point that he got a reputation himself as being a drunkard and a glutton and a friend of sinners, right? Now, sidebar, okay? While I was doing my research for all of this, I came across so many articles where people were, t were actually twisting themselves into knots to explain why Jesus could not possibly have been a friend of sinners. Okay? He could not, they could not have meant that he was actually their friend because they were sinners and he was God. So he couldn't have been their friend. Right? The reason Jesus was doing it, right, was to get them to, you know, believe in him and join his church, right? That's why, that's why Jesus was doing it. Now, I, th I read that and I thought, that's us imposing our thinking and motivation onto Jesus, right? Because I've done that. Has anyone else ever done that? I've befriended people in order to get them saved. And when they didn't comply with my plan, I unfriended them. Anyone else? It's almost like, yeah, I'm just being pragmatic about this. I don't have a lot of time. I've got to spend it with people who are going to respond the way I want them to respond. Does that sound like Jesus? Like that Jesus would actually befriend someone simply in order to, right? It doesn't sound a lot like love, does it? Because if, if 
there is an agenda, it's not love, is it? If you only love someone in order to, that's not love. Now, I'm not saying that people didn't change after encountering Jesus. But Jesus didn't go in there and hang around with these people and befriend them and earn that reputation as a friend of sinners just so they would all have a positive response to what he had to say. A lot of them did, not everyone, a lot of them did, but it wasn't just because. See, I, it was just such a stark contrast. Jesus' approach was, I love you, I accept you, I will sit with you, I will touch you, I will be associated with you. And as, in response to that, people came alive and they changed. The religious leaders was, you need to take a bath first, you need to get washed up, you need to get clean, you need to jump through these hoops and then, then you will be acceptable to me. We need to have a whole lot more confidence in the transformational power of unconditional love and grace, don't we? We need to have a whole lot more confidence in the, un, in the power of unconditional love and grace, that, that we can love people, we can extend to them grace, and then we just leave the rest up to God. Because to be honest, he's best placed to deal with whatever's going on in their life, yes? He's the best one. He's the only one that can bring about real change. And here's another thing, while I'm on a rant. Churches have reputations, right? And it's okay to have a reputation. You can have churches and you go, oh, you can go to that church, they have fantastic worship. You can go to that church, they have great teaching. You go to that church, they have great connect groups or great programs and whatever. And it's fine. It's good to have a whole range of really, really good things. But you know what reputation I want more than anything? I want to be that church that has the same reputation as Jesus for having all the wrong people as part of it. That's the reputation I want. I don't want people just going, oh, they've got fantastic worship. We do. We've got fantastic teaching. Of course we do. Um, humility is not one of my greatest gifts. Um, you know, it's good that we do all of that. Don't get me wrong. It's good that we do all of that. But the reputation, I want people to go, oh, man, that church, anyone can belong to that church. When we've got that reputation, I will go, I think we're following Jesus. Okay. I think we're following Jesus when we have that reputation. So Jesus had a come-as-you-are policy. The religious leaders of the day had a far more exclusive approach to who could be at the table. Years ago, um, Heather and I used to belong to a thing called an Emmaus Walk. Has anyone heard of these things? Okay, they're a sort of, you go away... Um, I think men do one weekend, women do the weekend after and whatever. And so we were leaders on these, these various things. And they're quite, quite, quite the experience. Anyway, we'd met a, a young couple, um, or Heather had met the wife, and we, we got in touch with them afterwards. And they're a young couple who were attending a church in a suburb not far from us. And they, they had had, you know, quite a... They were non-church people. They were non-church people, and they'd had quite rough upbringings. And the reason they were at this church was because they'd moved into a house that was owned by the church as kind of an emergency thing. And part of the quid pro quo for the church was, you know, you, you live in our house, you come to our church. Hey, no strings attached there, right? So, so they, anyway, so they go, they go along and they, don't, they actually don't mind it, which is good, you know. And... and they're kind of genuinely open to Jesus. They're, you know, they've not grown up learning about Jesus. They've not grown up in church. They've, they've come from pretty rugged backgrounds, but they're not, they're not against this. They're, 
yeah, they, they really want to start learning more about this type of stuff. Well, this particular church had a very specific way of conducting communion once every six weeks. And they would do it by having the table right at front and centre of the church. And at the front of the church, the elders would stand there and distribute communion, but two elders would stand either side to police who got communion. They were bouncers in the house of the Lord, right? And so the problem with this particular setup was you didn't know if you were allowed to have communion until you got to the front of the church in front of everybody, right? So they walk down there with everyone else and as they approach the table, the elders stop and go, stop, not you. Well, that not you not only sent them literally running from the church that day, but away from God, away from Jesus and sent them into a spiral that they never recovered from and things went from bad to worse. At one point... In that Luke story, as I said, when Jesus is launching into the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, he says to them, not only have you not entered the party, but you stand in the way of those who are trying to enter. What an indictment. If you think people are that broken and that unworthy that they cannot come to the table, right, to experience the very thing that will bring the healing and restoration they need. What are we thinking? The reason we have an open table is because it is for people who need it, not for people who don't. The only people that should sit out taking communion in this church are the people who are already too good for it. The rest of us need it, yes? The rest of us need it. So to me, it doesn't make sense that you would prevent people from encountering Jesus. The only condition that I would put on it is that you need to be hungry and thirsty. That you want whatever's on offer to the degree that you even understand that. You don't have to have a full theological or biblical understanding of what it's all about. You just have to know, I've heard about this Jesus and I would like to know a little bit more. And Paul talks about the fact that when we take communion, we're in fact partaking of the body and blood of Jesus. Why would you prevent someone from encountering Jesus in some sort of mystical way? It doesn't make sense, does it? It just doesn't make sense. You know, in the story of the prodigal son, there are two brothers. And the younger brother, he decides to take everything, bring shame on his family and then ultimately he blows up his life. He comes home and his father welcomes him with open arms, puts a ring on his finger, a robe, sandals, full restoration, full reinstatement and then throws this massive party because this son of mine that was lost is now found. The older brother, the one who has stayed put, who has done his duty, who has ticked all the boxes, who's the one who's, who's never set a foot wrong, where is he while this party is going on? He's outside. He's outside the party. And the father goes outside of the party and pleads with him 
to come in to the party. Why am I telling you this? Because Jesus was telling these stories to the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. As if to say, not that this is applicable to anyone here. You are outside of the party and you are preventing people who are trying to get in. They were having their own parallel party. You know, like the sad kid that doesn't get invited to the cool party, so you throw one for yourself? I've never done that. (laughs) They're throwing their own party. But it's not the one that God is throwing. And this was the big thing about the meals of Jesus. They didn't just disagree about the guest list, about who was able to come. They disagreed. They didn't understand that the party had already started. That kingdom feast that they were looking forward to in the future, it had already turned up in Jesus. The kingdom was here, it was now, and all of these people were entering the kingdom and feasting in the kingdom of God. But the religious leaders, the people whose job it was to make sure that people stayed on the straight and narrow, they were outside of this party and making it incredibly difficult for anyone else to get into it. We can do that as Christians. We can do that as churches with the best of intentions, yeah? With the best of intentions, You're all a bit stunned. Can I just get a yes? Thank you. Have I frightened you too much? (laughs) I can't see what you're mouthing. He's a heretic. He's a heretic. And then just nodding at me. And the corollary there is like, you know, church we can be having our own party and it could be going great and 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 we can have all the the signs that things are moving and going and it's we're all having a wonderful time and it's terrific but is it the is it the kingdom party that 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 jesus is throwing is it is it the same thing where those who really want to enter that have been somehow believe or been taught or understand themselves to be unworthy, unacceptable, the sort of people that can't be here, the sort of people that God would not want to touch, would they feel like they could come? Are we throwing that sort of party where it's like anyone feels like they can come and they don't have to wash up first before they get here? That's the sort of party we should be holding. Now let me just set some things straight while I finish. And I think it was Kira who said, you know, when you say that, you've got another half an hour to go. So thank you, Kira, for setting everyone up for that. But let's just get some things straight. It's, it's his party and it's his table. He sets the conditions. He sets the guest list. We are not the bouncers at the door in the house of the Lord. Our only responsibility in this life is to send out the invitations to make sure that the table is set. That's it. You want a metaphor or metaphorical picture of what we do in this life? We are table setters. We are people who make sure this table is set so that when people want to turn up to that party, there is room for them at the table. That is the job that we have in this life. Now, just in case you're thinking, oh, I'm saying, oh, it doesn't matter what people are up to, it doesn't matter any, you know, I'm not saying that at all. 
I'm just saying it's not our job to try and get people to change before they can come in. In fact, it's not our job to try and get people to change at all. Our job is not to fix people. Our job is to love people. Again, we need to have more confidence in the power of unconditional love and grace. I don't know what needs fixing in you. You don't know what needs fixing in me. Be on my back today. That's what I've talked to everyone about. We don't know what's going on for people. We don't know what they need in their life. We can make assumptions about things. We can try and do our best. But there's no substitute for God getting to that person and bringing the healing and restoration that they need. And the only way that is going to happen if they can be around the people of God to experience that. When Jesus ate with all the wrong people, who was affected? They were. Not Jesus. And that's what we need to understand. We live in fear. We live in fear and so we exercise judgment. Judgment never changes lives for the better. Have you ever met anyone whose life has been changed for the better by being judged? I've met a lot of people whose lives have been changed for the worse, but never anyone whose life has been changed for the better by being judged. Judgment and exclusion are the weak and ineffective options. Judgment and exclusion are the fear-based options. Fear that will be contaminated, fear that will be compromised, fear will get a bad reputation for letting all the wrong people in, fear that we will be defiled. But again, when Jesus ate with people, it was them who was changed, not him. And greater is he who is in us than he is in the world, yes? Love is the nuclear option. There is nothing more powerful than unconditional love and grace. And we don't have to worry about being defiled because grace is so much more powerful than sin and light is so much more powerful than darkness. We need to believe our own rhetoric sometimes. We really do. We need to believe our own rhetoric. You know, every church has something on their website or their signage that says, everyone welcome. Come as you are. But do we mean that? I'm starting to think we need to have a truth in advertising for churches. You know, everyone welcome. And then we'll work out what happens to you once you get here. We'll work out how inclusive we'll be of you. We'll work out what you can and can't participate in. We'll work out whether, in fact, you do belong and you feel like you do belong. Or everybody welcome, click here for exceptions. Or even this one, we'd rather you didn't come at all. I once had a lady in my last church come up to me and say, I don't like it when we have Easter services. All these other people come along. Yes. I, didn't, I don't remember what my response to that was. I think I stared at her for a very long time. And the contempt in my eyes bore holes in her soul. Um, but apart from that, no, I was quite loving in my response. But she meant it. I, was, I did it in love. You disgust me. No. What I'm saying is we need to be careful that we don't use the language of inclusion without the practice to back it up. You know? If we're going to... If we're going to talk a good game, we need to live a good game, you know? So if we say, everyone is welcome, anyone can belong, this table is big enough for anyone and everyone. 
We better mean that. They better not be except, but, if. It just needs to be a statement, full stop, end of. When we say you belong, you belong. You belong. We've seen this work. We've seen this work. Why does this matter? The simple truth is that the church is meant to be a redemptive community, a transformational community of people, people who are being shaped by Jesus to look more like Jesus. But a community is only redemptive to the degree that we can be ourselves, to the degree that we can be honest. There's nothing redemptive about being selectively authentic and feeling the need that we have to edit ourselves all the time so we can fit in and belong. That is conformity. That is behaviour modification. That is not transformation, is it? We do not want a church full of people who are just trying to fit in. We want a church full of people who are being transformed by the love and grace of Jesus Christ to be who they were created to be, to be free from the things that hold them back and the things that plague them, to know that life that he said that we can have to the full. That doesn't come about by by people trying to shoehorn themselves into our code of behaviour. That comes from only encountering the love and grace of Jesus Christ continually. And we're the ones that have to exhibit that for ourselves and for others. And I get it, it's messy to set a bigger table that's ruled by love. It is uncomfortable, it is scary, it will stretch us and it will cost us. But to be honest, it's the right thing to do. It's the way of Jesus. In my opinion, the biggest challenge that the church in the West in Australia has in this 21st century has nothing to do with COVID or technology or atheism or anything like that, has everything to do with what I'm talking about today. We already have a reputation of being some of the most intolerant people around. We do. We have that one. The thing that is going to change people's minds about what we're on about is when they see us set a big table where anyone and everyone can belong. When they see us model The Jesus we claim to follow in the way he spent time and allowed people like that into his sphere. Not just in order to, but because he just genuinely loved them. Let me just finish with this quote. And I mean finish with this quote, not going to go on for another half an hour. Community, spiritual or otherwise, is only redemptive to the degree that we are fully seen and known when we partake in it. When we no longer feel burdened to pretend, when guilt or shame or fear are no longer a threat, when we can bring our truest selves without redaction, then we are really free. This is the table that Jesus invites us to. This is the table his example demands we set for the world. We, the filthy lepers, all get to dine with the Messiah and none of us need to be clean. Amen? And what a beautiful note to end on because we are going to go and take communion now. And again, this is only there for people who need it. But Jesus invites us to his table. We go and we meet with him. And I pray that this morning you will have another fresh 
encounter with Jesus. Amen? Amen. Thank you. Welcome to the Restore Church Sermons Podcast. We're so glad you joined us here today. We hope that through this message, you are encouraged, challenged, and strengthened. If you want to know more about Jesus, Restore Church, or have any questions, please head to restorechurch.com.au.